Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is our seventh session on the War of the Ring tonight. So, um, okay, I have some really exciting updates for you guys. So I, I hope that those uh, most of you have gotten a chance, either you were able to attend my session last Thursday where I made the announcements, and I'm going to get, like, seizures from this lamp over here. What is the, what's your damage over here? All right, okay. All right. Okay. I hope, as I was saying, that most of you were able to uh, either attend uh, my session last Thursday or have uh, heard it so that you have heard our good news that Signum University is entering into the state certification process. We are, well, okay. So a lot of people always ask and have wondered for years, like, okay, so why aren't you guys accredited yet? You know, why aren't you guys certified yet? What, what's, what's, what's that about? It's not that the process takes years. It's that getting yourself to the point where you're prepared to knock on the door and begin the process takes years. Um, if you ever get a chance to, and I don't recommend this for pleasure reading, uh, if you ever get a chance to look at the requirements uh, for like what your institution needs to look like, you know, just you look at the, the kinds of questions they ask you and the kinds of information they want. And you can see all these things that need to be able to, to be in place uh, and to be functioning and, uh, you know, you need to be able to have data on it and stuff and everything before you're ready to start the process. The process itself is, uh, is not actually that long or complicated, and I will say, especially in the state of New Hampshire, uh, where the people at the Department of Education have been wonderful and uh, have really moved us along and helped us out tremendously. Uh, in, it's just been a great help through the process and uh, and, and, and really encouraging and, and helping us prepare and move through. So anyway, um, th th so the, the process itself is not so painful. It's been the getting here uh, that has been the long uphill struggle and the, you know, surviving while we are in the process of trying to get to this point. So getting to this point, huge, huge deal. Now, um, I was so the, the, at the end of my session last Thursday night, I was uh, talking about how much money we need because unfortunately, this whole process is really expensive, both the certification process and the accreditation process, which follows immediately after the certification process, uh, are very expensive. Um, it costs, you know, we put up a, let's see, where is it? Where did we go? Here's where it went. Okay. So here's the our web page here, which you can find on our donate tab on the signumuniversity.org website, our uh, uh, credentialing fees page. Uh, so you see we broke this down, you know, that our expenses are almost $24,000 to pay all of the fees and, uh, and uh, stipends and everything that are part of this evaluation process, as well as the process of incorporating officially in the state of New Hampshire, which is the single biggest chunk. So uh, at the end of last Thursday, I was like, so, you know, the difficult thing is that we need uh, $23,720 and we need that on top of our regular budget, which is uh, really hard because everyone has already given so generously. We've 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 had such a wonderful fundraising year, uh, it, you know, just such wonderful support from all of you guys already. Right. To help support our annual budget. And uh, and now we're like NPS. We need another twenty four thousand dollars on top of all that. Guess what? That was six days ago that I made that announcement. Now, six days later, we have already raised $26,100. We are almost $2,500 
over what we are what we need for state certification and that's in one week of fundraising the response has been absolutely incredible um i just i just i just got an email which kind of like made my eyes pop just because i mean it wasn't something i didn't know but kind of just seeing it there in print we've received twelve thousand dollars in donations in the last 24 hours like i get these you know the, the our system that we use sends me daily emails like and you know today this much money is being transferred to segment fund today it said twelve thousand two hundred dollars i've never seen the like of that uh before um it's been amazing. So we now have everything that we need. Now, as I mentioned at the end of the, th- you know, so uh, uh, we're, we're, we're a little bit over, which is awesome. The thing that I would say is, again, first of all, you guys are absolutely incredible. The way that people have responded uh, to this need has been so encouraging. We've had a, not only, um, you know, many very generous donations from people who have who have been very generous with us uh, regularly in the past, but we have had a a bunch of brand new people come in and 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 give and and in some cases give extremely generously, and it has been so encouraging to see and and uh, such an inspiration to see how many of you uh, are as excited as I am about this project and seeing Signum University take this next step and really join the mainstream of you know uh, uh, fully legitimized. Uh, universities, uh, you know, to, as I was saying on Thursday, to really shift from being a great idea to actually being an established thing. It's kind of amazing. So anyway, so the, the, so that's, that, that, that's awesome. I mean, it's, it's been just incredible. If you were thinking, if you haven't gotten a chance to give yet, because it's only been six days, and maybe you even just heard about it in the last in the last day or so, um, if you were thinking of giving, you still can. That's the good news is that you can still give because uh, as it is twenty four thousand, a little less than twenty four thousand dollars to cover all of our certification fees, accreditation is gonna be more than that actually. Um, now. I can't give you this same kind of breakdown here um, with accreditation yet. There are some things that need to happen, um, some decisions that need to be made, a couple, it's a little bit of more information that I need to get, uh, and a charisma check that I need to pass. But if I pass my charisma check, then I think um, we're going to, the minimum cost, essentially, which is what my <laughs> my charisma check is going to be aimed at, uh, getting us at the minimum here. Uh, th- the minimum cost of the next step of of the art to 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 go through the evaluation for accreditation uh, is going to be about twenty six thousand more dollars uh, on top of this. Um, and if I fail my charisma check, then it's going to be more than that substantially. So um, we will. Um, we will we will see and and absolutely so of course this this doesn't mean that uh, uh, I, I, I am being reminded and of course I I, I do want to make this perfectly clear uh, we're not promising right we're not guaranteeing that we are going to be receiving accreditation accrediting bodies very sensitive about this right uh, we are going to be going through the process of a we are planning to go through the process to apply for accreditation. Um, and that process of application, which we are very concretely planning to do, costs at least $26,000. So uh, so first we have to come up with the money and then we have to uh, 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 hope and trust that we can pass the evaluations. So, um, right. So the, um, uh, the, the 
as I said, uh, the, the, the minimum that we're going to really need to be able to knock on that second door is going to be about $26,000. So the good news is we're doing great. Like we're, you know, so not only do we already have 100% of our certification costs, uh, but we're already 10% of the way to accreditation, to our minimum accreditation costs as well. So, uh, you know, definitely, uh, as I say, if you're, um, um, if you're, uh, um, if, if you're still thinking of or, 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 you know, planning or hoping to give, totally still can. Um, the need on that is a little bit, I mean, we're, we're, we're going to need that sometime within the next probably three or four months, uh, is my, is my hope. Maybe, maybe four to six. We'll see. Again, I'll, I'll update you guys more as we, uh, as we get through, if, uh, you know, as we, uh, you know, Lord willing, get through the uh, the certification process successfully, and that all goes well. Which again, also not guaranteeing. We're in the evaluation process and being evaluated, and I I hope and trust that we will succeed uh, in that uh, in that process. And should we do so, then uh, we will then uh, move on to the next adventure. Um, uh, it's it's kind of it, it reminds me a lot of. Um, you know, scenes in Sir Thomas Mowry, you know, like one of those scenes where you, uh, uh, like Sir Gareth, right? You know, when you come and you fight, first you fight like the knight in green armor, right? And then you, you defeat the knight in green armor. And then uh, after you, you, you defeat, then no one's ever defeated the knight in green armor before, right? But you defeat the knight in green armor and you continue on. And then past him is the knight in, in, in blue armor, right? And you, and you, 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 you defeat the knight in blue armor. And then you have his brother, who is the knight in red armor, right? Which nobody has ever even fought before. Uh, he's so amazing. And anyway, so that's it's kind of like the process that we're in, right? So we're still we're still in the night with green mar- with green armor here, uh, and then uh, once we uh, uh, surmount that obstacle, we will we will we will get to the next one. Anyhow, so yeah, I will definitely keep you guys posted, and and yeah, Kimber, I it is my desire to be totally transparent here. That's why we're being complete. Completely, uh, I mean, uh, I have n- we have nothing to be ashamed of in in uh, in posting the fees that we're being charged, uh, and and we you know this is this is the way we are. I was you know talking with the uh, the commissioner of higher education in New Hampshire last night again as you know, we were kind of touching base on our schedule and everything, and uh, and you know he was saying like he's never heard of another uh, another crowdfunded university before, which is essentially, you know, it's, that's what we are. It's, it's what we're doing. Um, and it's really kind of an amazing thing. I mean, it, it really picks up on one of the primary sort of statements that I have, um, uh, you know, tried to make in our documentation is to say, you know, look, Signum, we've, we have, you know, we've done this impossible thing, right? We, we don't have we don't have funding like we, you know we didn't come in with an endowment um you know we don't come in with an institutional affiliation you know somebody else's accreditation or something to piggyback on um we've built ourselves entirely from scratch with no funding at all while deliberately keeping our prices as low as we can and doing half of what we do entirely for free that's been our <laughs> our keen shrewd business strategy from the beginning and we have done what we've done and we have succeeded in the, the one thing we have you know the one benefit that Signum has always had is people, right? We have you guys. That's what we have. Um, both, you know, those of you who have been our enthusiastic students uh, uh, over the over the years, you know, who have been our early adopters in our master's degree program and auditing our courses, uh, as well as, of course, those of you who have been uh, uh, so generous in supporting our um, our 
fundraising drives and things. It's, uh, it's, it's really cool. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. So anyway, yeah, we're, so we're, it's definitely my goal to be completely as, as transparent as I can be. There are some things I'm not allowed to talk about. Like for instance, one thing I will not just to warn you. So it doesn't seem weird at the time. One thing I am not allowed to do is tell you what accrediting body we are, are, are the, the, the name of the accrediting body to which we are applying is not allowed to pass my lips in public because it's very much against the rules for us to create any sort of apparent association with this accrediting body until the fine day comes when they grant us membership and accreditation, at which point we can brag about it. But until then, while we're in the application period, I am not allowed to say uh, what accrediting body we are applying to. So I will have to just be generic in my labels there. So again, as I said, there's some things I can't be transparent about, but I certainly uh, want to... uh, kind of walk you guys through this process and tell you guys uh, how this is happening. So anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. So, um, all right. That's, uh, so that's the biggest announcement, you know, this, oh, look at that. Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, let's extend our time there just in case I want to make a donation later. All right. Uh, so thank you guys again for your help. And I, again, I would encourage you, uh, still to, to, to continue if you can, uh, to, to donate, to support that. We have, uh, you know, still, you know, another, another 20,000 or so at least that we need. We have a little time for that, but again, uh, that will be, uh, that will be really good. And as I say, I'll keep you posted. Um, all right. (laughs) Matthew thinks we should create, um, we should create a, a fake name for the anonymous accrediting body that we are applying to. I think it's a great idea. Uh, we, we should, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with something, right? Okay. Yeah. So you guys over in the chat room, you guys figure this out. We need a name. We need a, we need a, uh, a, a pen name, you know, a pseudonym for the accrediting body, but it can't be insulting, right? You know, cause they're, they're, they're probably going to see this, right? So, uh, it has to be, it has to be something decorous, uh, that we wouldn't mind saying in front of them. Just, just, you know, little ground rules, uh, on that, uh, on that there. Um, okay. All right. Um, <laughs> they who may not be named. Yeah. That's kind of, uh, kind of by default, uh, what I'm kind of going with, right. Uh, you know, we're about ready to submit our paperwork to, uh, the accrediting body who must not be named. Um, exactly. Okay. So yeah. Okay. I think that was what I had for announcements. Of course, other upcoming events, uh, that I just wanted to remind you, of course, the biggest one coming up very soon is London Moot. Uh, London Moot is happening, uh, when is that? The 28th, which is quite soon now. <laughs> I'm like, what day is it again? I'm so lost. Uh, a little over two weeks now to London Moot. Um, so that's going to be uh, that's going to be great fun. And of course, Myth Moot coming up. We, uh, you know, it's uh, definitely time. If you haven't registered for Myth Moot yet, you totally need to do that. It's going to be amazing this year, uh, and uh, I can't wait. Uh, especially since we are schedule. I am scheduled to be to appear before the higher education commission uh to defend the the uh application of signum university for state certification two days before Mythmoot, right uh so i'm going to be like practically driving straight from concord uh to Mythmoot. it's going to be awesome uh but anyway so Mythmoot. uh if you want to be at the party come to Mythmoot. so um all right uh very good let's um let's uh let's get Let's get moving. 
Let's get moving. Let's uh, let's 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 talk about stuff. So last time we were in the middle of the evolution of Faramir, right? And you may remember that the whole the Faramir sequence um, evolved in two parts in Tolkien's mind, right? Uh, the first thing was the capture of Frodo and Sam and their interrogation by the captain, right? Who is of course originally named Falborn, son of Anborn. And then, of course, his dad sticks around. Uh, Anborn is still a member of, uh, of, of, of his company, but uh, his name, of course, changes to Faramir. Uh, he is just a captain of Gondor, right? Then he becomes, while he is recounting the story of seeing Boromir in the boat, he becomes Boromir's brother, right? That's something, which is one of those things which just kind of bubbles up, right? And, and seems to almost emerge from Tolkien as he's writing without him even knowing it, right? That all of a sudden, as he's speaking, it's clear that he that uh, Falborn is Boromir's brother. Um, so uh, anyway, so so that part of it, and then of course, what is he going to do at the end? How is that sequence going to end? And of course, initially, it ends with him arresting them and taking them, and fully intending uh, to take them to uh, Minas Tirith. And uh, James, I think it was. Was it James Oakley? I think it was James Oakley. Um, uh, emailed me and was talking about this, and and I kind of touched on it, but but I I think he's right. You know, it's it's worth kind of thinking about a little bit more, um, a little bit more explicitly. It's really interesting to see, you know, when you think about Peter Jackson's Faramir, right? Which I know, you know. All you have to do is say Peter Jackson's Faramir, and it and it causes like weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth uh, among many Tolkien fans. But you can see why this happened. Right. In fact, you can even hear them talking about it when you if you, you know, listen to the director's commentary or, you know, many of those uh, many of those DVD extras with which the uh, the original uh, Lord of the Rings uh, film uh, trilogy was was was, uh, you know, packaged with. Um, They basically, you know, so Tolkien originally and Peter Jackson and crew ran into exactly the same problem. Right. Here's Frodo and Sam you know, who have been taken captive by these Gondorian soldiers. What's he going to do, right? What's the captain going to do? And both of their answers is the same at first, right? He's going to take them back to Minas Tirith, obviously, right? To do otherwise would be to be disobeying his commander, right? I mean, there's... He only has two options. Remember when when Falborn makes this explicit to Frodo, right? I've got two options. One is to kill you out of hand. The other is to arrest you and take you back to Minas Tirith, right? So I'm not going to kill you because I'm, you know, kind and generous and merciful, and I see no reason to just behead you on the spot. So I'm going to do the kind, generous, benevolent, merciful thing and haul you back to Minas Tirith as that's my only other option, right? Uh, and there's... And there is no... I, that is the perfectly logical outcome. You know, if you're asking yourself, as, as it's clear, you know, Tolkien does when he's developing these stories, like, what what would happen here, right? What would this character do? And the answer to what would Falborn do is obviously, he's a good enough guy, he's not going to kill him, so he has to take them prisoner, right? What else can he do? What other option could there possibly be? And the answer to that, of course, is, you know, this is the step that then Tolkien went on to take, and Peter Jackson and company balked at, right? Uh, the step that Tolkien took was to say, okay, there is one circumstance in which Faramir would take a third option, 
right? A third option just to let them go and continue on their way in this land, which is under complete lockdown. This is, this is, they're behind enemy lines here, right? They're behind enemy lines, uh, functionally, uh, in Athelion now. And, to capture somebody and then just be like, oh, no, you're fine. You may be spies or whatever, and you've not, you know, like, but uh, we're just going to let you go. It's all good, right? That doesn't happen, right? Or rather, it only can happen if the captain in question has the authority to be able to make that kind of a call, right? And that ultimately is the, the is where Faramir, of course, ends up, book Faramir ends up. Tolkien... Uh, the character grows and grows, right? And it's not just about being Boromir's, but it's not just his birthright, right? It's not just the fact that he's Boromir's brother and therefore the son of the Lord of Minas Tirith, because that happens first, remember, right? He's still Falborn. He's still the captain. He's still going to take them prisoner and haul them back to Minas Tirith while being the son of Denethor. So it's not about his official position. It's about his character, right? That he would be the kind of person who a could make this particular discernment and would also have both the the sort of moral fortitude as well as like the sufficient kind of strength of character and strength of position and and because i mean like his lieutenants could totally be like dude like this is not okay like you can't do this right unless he's faramir right uh, unless their relationship with him is such that they trust him even when he seems to be doing something pretty questionable, right? That they, that they can't see any justification for. So that choice to sort of take Faramir's personal stature, right, and increase it to the point, again, not just his position, but his, his nature, his character, and elevate it to that point. And that's exactly, of course, what we see Peter Jackson and Philippa Boyens unwilling to do, right? Um, they're unwilling to uh, to make him... Larger than life in that particular way, right? Um, he does grow in stature, Josiah. That's exactly it. Um, so it's it's really fascinating, actually, when you when you go back and you look at this. Uh, and you know, James, again, thank you for uh, kind of juxtaposing that really clearly for me. Because once you do that, it is really interesting to see, right? You can see it's almost exactly the same thought process. They're going through almost exactly the same thought process um, as Tolkien went through, and starting at the same place. It's just he makes that one step. And again, where they balk explicitly. I remember uh, the documentary scene when Philippa Boyan says this, uh, when she says, she quotes the not if I found it by the highway thing, and she's like, we couldn't have that, right? She's like, we spent all this time trying to build up the temptation of the ring and how, you know, the the power that it has over people, and have you know, Faramir come along and just be like, whatever, I'm not even tempted. Her argument was that just totally undermines the whole thing, right? Um, in the world of their film, in which they were cutting everybody down to size, I mean, that's, of course, the great, my great criticism, and, of course, I'm far from unique in this. Um, you know, the great thing that, that Peter Jackson did, well, the big thing, I won't call it great, of course, uh, the worst thing, in my opinion, uh, but the, 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 this big trend, of course, throughout Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films is that he brings everybody's character down um, you know, making them sort of less heroic, less larger than life. Um, and certainly that's what happens to, uh, to Faramir. Um, so they're not willing to make that step, but Tolkien does make that step. So what happens then, right? Where, what do we see? Occur- so as the story is growing, right? As this, as Tolkien is learning who this guy really is, right? Right. 
Um, he has already written the interrogation scene. Remember the whole business about about uh, Isildur's bane and uh, the like, the accusations, the implicit accusations, right? About the you know that they uh, sneaked up behind Boromir and killed him and cut his horn in half and chucked the halves over the waterfall, right? To try to hide the evidence, right? That all that stuff's already been written. Right, and he keeps it all. Oh, because of course he does. Right, um, of course he keeps it all. Uh, but um, but and, you know this is what that's what that's what Tolkien does. Um, but uh, so so yeah. So he he he's already written that stuff. He keeps it all. Um, but he he now is going to move on from that. Right, and so the the scene which is going to become the conversation they have while they're walking. And the conversation that they have, you know, at dinner there in Henneth Anun. Um, and I love the moment. I, I, don't, I don't think, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think I put this on a slide, so I'll just mention it now. I love that moment that Christopher points to when Tolkien gets further along in this in this like discussion that they've been having. And he realizes that like, he still left them just like sitting on the ground. Right. Uh, where Tolkien gets so absorbed in the conversation that they're having, right. That he like forgets to actually get them places. Right. So the, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating kind of moment because that's something, um, we've seen many times before when this, like the, the sort of visual snapshot of the setting is something that kind of comes early on, right? Where he'll sort of picture in his head where these things are. And that's why we get all that landscape description stuff going on. Right. Um, and I would have guessed, you know, if you had just asked me before reading this book, Henneth Anun, right. What came first? I would have guessed that image, right. That image of, uh, the waterfall and moonset. I mean, that gorgeous description, right? That gorgeous description of the, the sunset coming through the waterfall, right? And then moon and then moonset over Gondor, right? At the end, you know, later that night, those pictures, right? Those pictures of both, you know, the, the moonlight and the pool, uh, you know, later on and the sunset and the, uh, and, and the waterfall, I would have guessed, that those things came first, right? That he had those pictures in his mind. And then the conversation came afterwards as he was kind of, you know, getting them there and then moving them along. But of course we see, you know, as is so often the case, my guess would have been completely wrong, right? Uh, and in fact, he almost forgot to do any of those things because he got so swept up just in the conversation uh, that they were having together. It was the conversation um, that was really the... the um, the core of all of this. That's what emerged when he makes this decision, right? When he chooses halfway through, you know, having finished that first half, the interrogation scene and having taken the decision to, to elevate Faramir's stature. And then what happens next, right? When, once he makes that decision, what happens next? What happens next is the guy just won't shut up, right? Faramir keeps talking and talking and talking and even makes that joke about it, uh, to Christopher in their letters. Um, yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, good. Okay. So let's um let's actually look at passages here. Um really interesting that 
So this is Christopher explaining that it is here that the stewards of Gondor first appear, and the passage concerning them in the two towers was written in the draft text virtually without hesitation or correction, although there is no preliminary material extant. It is notable that from his first appearance in the breaking of the Fellowship, Denethor has never been called king. He is the Lord Denethor, Denethor, Lord of the Tower of Guard. It seems more than likely, therefore, that this cardinal element in the history and government of Gondor was already of long standing, though never until now emerging into the narrative. The line of Denethor is traced in the draft to Maraher, the good steward, changed probably at once to Mardil, the name in the manuscript. But the last king of the line of Anarion, in whose stead Mardil ruled when he went away to war, was not Aarnor. Both in draft and manuscript, he is named King Alessar. Uh, now, this is one of those uh, really fun trivia questions, right? There's, there's there's a handful of them, right? You know, it's one of the cool things about going through the history of the Lord of the Rings together, right? Is that we get all these nuggets that you can use to, like, amaze and spring. You know, not only can you talk about Trotter the Hobbit with wooden shoes, and not only can you talk about Bingo Baggins and, uh, and all that kind of thing, right? And Aragorn being the name of Gandalf's horse. Uh, but King Olesar, right? That King Olesar was the name of the dude, uh, the last king. Uh, in the line, and that's kind of amazing. Um, I'm going to do that thing that makes me uncomfortable again, though. That is, disagree with Christopher. Or at least, I'm going to be dubious of the claim that Christopher... Let me put it that way. I'm not saying he's wrong, right? But I am saying I am dubious of the claim that he makes here. Um, I, I mean, obviously, I agree that he's never been called king. I'm not saying he's wrong about facts. But Christopher makes the observation that Denethor was never called king of Minas Tirith or king of Gondor. And he concludes from that fact that the idea that Denethor is a steward, you know, a hereditary steward uh, of Gondor was implicit already, like that that's why he wasn't called king in the first place. And it's only now that the whole steward thing is, um, is, is gonna, is, is coming up to the surface. Um, that's possible. Of course, I can't absolutely rule it. I can't disprove that that's the case, but I'd be a little bit surprised actually. And here's the reason I'd be a little bit surprised. Now, remember where we came from, right? With Gondor. Back in the Council of Elrond, remember, the Gondorians, the Gondor situation was it was a bunch of indigenous peoples who were being ruled over by the Numenorians, right? So Elendo and his sons come over uh, to Middle-earth and they are accepted and they're, they're taken as kings uh, by the people down there in Gondor. And then after a while, the people of Gondor boot them out. Right. Um, they're they're kicked out. And you'll recall back in the Council of Elrond, which now seems like a hundred years ago and indeed was in in fact years previous now, uh, given that big break that Tolkien had um, and much has changed since then. But still back in the Council of Elrond, the last version of the Council of Elrond that we've gotten, um, Aragorn was still kind of bitter about this. Right. 
uh, he was he was still cross at the people of Gondor uh, for kicking out the Dúnedain, and that's why the Northern Kingdom came about because it was the Numenorean realm in exile in exile. Right, they were exiled out of Gondor after they were already exiled out of Numenor. Uh, so, uh, and then from there, it's just it is but a step, right, for the uh, for Fornost to have been destroyed uh, because remember, Anuminus was not yet. And then they end up, you know, a wandering people. Then they become rangers. Um, so, okay, so that was the original story, right? Um, so far as we know, that or some kind of version of that has been kind of lurking in the background. There are two things, then, that lead me to doubt Christopher's interpretation here. One is that simply i don't see that that is a nece- it's necessary to believe that to explain this in other words we know that they kicked out the kings of numenor right did he say that they became kings themselves right it kind of sounds like you know we're done with kings right we're kicking out the we he's just going to be called the lord of minas tirith right he's just going to be called um the Lord of the Tower of Guard. We don't have kings anymore, right? We did away with the kings. The kings were the Numenorians. We got rid of the kings. You know, we established the kingship. We didn't feel that that was working out. We we kicked them out, and so we don't have kings anymore. Um, that's always why when Denethor was referred to as the Lord Denethor earlier in the Breaking of the Fellowship uh, stuff, as uh, Christopher was just referring to, that was what I was assuming at the time, because that was the last thing that we heard about the rulership of Gondor, right? That it's just to emphasize that they don't have kings anymore. Because remember, the whole concept of, at that point, at the Breaking of the Fellowship, we didn't have a clear Return of the King motif. We only got hints of that, you'll recall, during the Rohan sequence with Aragorn. Um, It wasn't, I don't recall, I mean, maybe I'm mashing things up in my head, and if I am, please clarify for me and and, uh, help me to remember, but I'm pretty sure we weren't doing the Return of the King yet when we were doing the Breaking of the Fellowship, the passage that Christopher was referring to. So, the idea that, because I think, let me spell that out one step further, it would seem to me that the, this idea, the idea of the ruling steward, right, still calling themselves stewards, right, and thinking of themselves as stewards, when you have that, the idea of the return of the king is implicit in that, right? You're not going to have somebody who's going to be like, I'm just, just, I'm just keeping the the seat warm for the king when the king i mean the the idea that a king will come someday hopefully you know at least that they're planning and and wishing that a king would return uh a rightful king would return to claim the throne is implicit in the idea that they're stewards and stewards and stewards and they're not called kings right uh so that's why it's that, that that's the number one reason why i'm dubious uh that Lord Denethor is already a steward in Tolkien's head, but he hasn't just said that, right? The second reason, so that's like my negative reason. Like, I, I, I don't see it there, and I don't think it needs to be there. It doesn't seem to me to explain anything, and rather it would seem to me peculiar because it would suggest the return of the king before the return of the king concept really comes up elsewhere. But the other reason, the other sort of positive reason, is that this concept... The idea that the the rulership of Minas Tirith is a stewardship, specifically, not just a lordship, right? Not just a non-king rulership, uh, but an active stewardship, um, seems to fit with the whole with the Faramir thing. Because, again, what happens when Tolkien elevates Faramir's stature and decides to make him who he is? 
is he talks, right? And what does he talk about? He talks about Gondor. Um, and it is, pre- we've seen this before, right? There have been several occasions, well, a few occasions anyway, in which we have seen Tolkien do this, right? When all of a sudden he's doing a conversation between his characters and world building spontaneous world building begins happening, right? Remember the conversation between Odo and Bingo and Faramond, or I forget which ones, the, what names, well, no, it was Frodo, right? It was Frodo Took. So Frodo Took and Odo and Bingo, that conversation they were having about throwing dishes out the window, right? out the upper story and everything, right? You know, that that moment when like the entire course of like the history of Hobbit architecture kind of emerged spontaneously in the course of their conversation. This is exactly the yeah, Nancy says, I will never forget that conversation. That's, it's such a classic, right? Um, this is a kind of thing that we've seen happen before when he begins with just dialogue, right? He's just, he's got two characters talking and they start, but once they start talking, these things start coming out and he just runs with it, right? Of course, we just saw it recently with the history of pipeweed uh, at the gates of Isengard uh, you know, with the whole, you know, herb lore of the Shire treatise being uttered uh, by Marion Pippin uh, there in the ruins of Isengard in that entire, um, uh, in that in that entire discussion, Stephen. Uh, so Nancy St- Stephen says uh, that 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 conversation is the the one instance in all of the history of Middle Earth that he most regrets not having <laughs> in a published text. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, really, what do you gain from not having that conversation about throwing the dirty wi- the dirty dishes out the upper story windows? But anyway, um, like I said, we've seen this happen, right? We you know this kind of you know, when these these ideas which are not about character and they're not about the plot, right? It's just world building, right? When these, you know, when some element or other, and it might seem like an unimportant one, right? Like the history of smoking, right? Um, But whatever it is, it starts coming and he starts to put it together and it comes out in the conversation of these characters, right? Um, This is, this happens, this clearly is happening here. We get this with Faramir and the history of Gondor. Not just the history, because we have gotten the old bits, right? But what is Gondor like now? You'll remember Gondor's been a bit of a cipher, right? And we were told about that ancient history, but what's going on? I mean, we've had Boromir, but what is Gondor like? What is the culture of Gondor? What is its status? What is its recent history? Um, is the old history still true? Are we? Is this still the, you know we showed the Numenorians the door culture, right? Is that still what's going on here? Um, and as soon as we get Faramir, it seems like the answer to that question is no. And I don't see very much reason to believe that um, the Gondor- that that element of Gondorian culture necessarily predates this passage. I mean, this is where we see this stuff emerging. This is where we see, um, um, uh, this is where we see the stuff beginning. So I like to actually sort of think, uh, here that Faramir himself is almost like the father of modern Gondor, right? Um, and that it's, it's kind of fascinating to me to see the, the sequence in which these things flow, right? Having, having come to this sort of plot crisis, 
right? What do I do now that I've got uh, Frodo and, and, and Sam captured by a faithful captain of Gondor who will surely take them back to Minas Tirith unless something crazy like Gollum rescuing them happens, right? We see that's a, a kind of a desperate expedient, but what else is he supposed to do, right? Um, when he gets himself out of that situation through the realization that, no, wait, the captain, right, whose name is Faramir, not Falborn, he's greater than that. Once he sees that Faramir is greater than that, all of this stuff about Gondor, its relationship to the ancient history, right, not just the Elendil period, right, but the Beleriand period, um, the fact that they are, they, you know, they are, they're not just indigenous peoples who at one point welcomed the Numenorians, right? Their identity now becomes Numenorian. They trace themselves back. Faramir traces himself back, right, to the Edain of the First Age, uh, the elf friends who fought alongside the Noldor in Beleriand. We see their relationship with the Rohirrim and the distinction between them and the Rohirrim, right? This, the, the, think of the things that Faramir says about Minas Tirith, right? Uh, uh, about about her wisdom, her ancientry, right? And all of those things. It seems to me that all of those things, those things that are so characteristic of Gondor, right? The Gondor concept as we get it in the Lord of the Rings, I see every reason to believe those things are emerging now, right? And the stewardship fits there. Of course, if this is a culture with those kinds of roots, if this culture is you know identifies itself as the modern uh uh you know heir, the modern descendant, right? Um carrying on the heritage of you know uh of 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 of, of Hurin and Beren and Beor and 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 uh you know the men of Brethil and all that. I mean if you know in Haleth if 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 that's how they see themselves, then some things are going to be different, right? They're not going to have kicked out the Numenorians. So this is not a question of the the ungrateful people who now are going to turn back to Aragorn. That's no longer the story, right? Even when the Return of the King became a thing uh, during the Rohan sequence, that was still kind of a thing. Is he going to win over the people? Remember those those um, back when Boromir wasn't going to die, uh, and instead he was going to he was going to turn evil, right? He was going to go over to Saruman and betray Minas Tirith. And the reason he was going to do that was because the people were going to choose um, were going to choose Aragorn as their captain. Denethor was going to die and they were going to choose Aragorn instead of Boromir, uh, Denethor's rightful uh, heir. So, again, clearly, the story was still about the people and the choices of the people. Uh, you know, maybe making better choices now than before, but, you know, maybe making up for it. And we get the reconciliation of Aragorn as representative of the Numenorians with the Gondorian people. But that seemed to be the story. Now, post-Faramir, now that Faramir has suddenly grown into who he is, that's not the story anymore. That story does not work. Now, we have a new story. And that new story, to me, seems to be the stewardship. Right? No, no, no. They didn't kick him out. Right? They lost them. Right? Just like the ants lost the antwives. Right? Uh, King Olesar went riding off and he never came back, but they have remained faithful. Now they have dwindled. Right? Uh, they have, uh, uh, they have, they have gone downhill. Um, it's not that they haven't faded like all things fade in Middle Earth, but they never turned away uh, from their, 
from their heritage, right? Um, and again, that seems to be down to Faramir, right? Faramir seems to me to be the starting point of that entire thing. Or at least, let me say, that reading, right? The reading in which Faramir is the, the, makes sense to me, right? Is it possible that he had already conceived all of this, and because that was already in his head, it's now coming out with Faramir? Yeah, again, I can't rule that out, right? But I don't see any I don't remember any positive evidence uh, that it was... Because it's not... Again, it's not just that, like, he never officially called them steward, and only now is he officially calling them steward. That, that, that's how he was thinking of them all along. I see no evidence that that's how he was thinking of them all along. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, okay. I'm not going to get anywhere if I take that long in every slide. Um, Gandalf's names... Of course, I couldn't forbear to look at this passage. Uh, so we get Faramir talking about his relationship with Gandalf. Added, Mithrandir among the elves, Sharkun to the dwarves. The name of my youth in the west is forgotten. Changed to Olorian. Changed to Olorin I was in my youth that is forgotten. Struck out Shorab or Shorob in the east. Forlong. Changed to Fornold in the south. Gandalf in the north. To the east I go not. Struck out, not everywhere. Uh, not everywhere, I'm a little confused by. That is, um, my best theory is that he was saying, I go not everywhere. And then he decides to cross that out and explicitly say, it's not just that I don't get around, right? It's that I specifically don't go to the east. Um, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> not all parts of the East. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, Nancy, exactly. Um, I agree, Tara. Shorob sounds uh, uh, distressingly like Shelob, right? Sharkoon is kind of cool, though, isn't it? Um, that is, it'd be kind of cool to see Gandalf have a name which is so similar to Sharky, right? Uh to, to see him be given a name which is kind of cognate to that in some way is kind of is kind of is kind of fun. I, I like that actually, um, but um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Stephen says that uh, Shorob sounds almost uh, uh, almost sounds Hebrew. Uh, perhaps I mean I I, I do think this is a. This is a passage that I imagine for, for, for people who are really into the philological side, right, of Tolkien, this has got to be a really cool passage, because I think, Stephen, it does kind of tip his hand a little bit, right, sort of show how is he, at this moment, right, how is he thinking about the, the sort of linguistic structure of these different lands and areas, right, um, why Forlong? Uh, several of you are asking about Forlong the Fat. No, I don't think this implies, of course, that Gandalf was rotund. Uh, obviously, Forlong is originally Gandalf's name, and then is, that name is going to be recycled, like he does, right? You're going to cut the name of Forlong uh, for Tolkien, but you're not going to forget it, right? You're going to cut that out. You're going to put that in your name drawer over here, and then later on, when you've got a fat lord uh, of Lasarnak, you're going to you're going to name him Forlong. Um, 
Anyway, well, let's uh, uh, carry on reading Christopher's commentary here. The passage was then written out again in the draft, in the same form as it has in the two towers, but with the names Sharkoon and Fornold, this latter being subsequently changed to Inkanus. In the manuscript, Sharkoon, for later Tharkoon, remains. Here the, so Sharkoon persisted, at least briefly. Here the name Olorin first appears, changed from Olorion. On Gandalf's names in the south, Forlong changed to Fornold, I can cast no light. I do not know whether it is relevant that in Appendix F to the Lord of the Rings, the name of Forlong, Lord of Lasarnach, who died in the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, is said to be among the names in Gondor that were of forgotten origin and descended doubtless from days before the ships of the Numenorians sailed the sea. Uh, so it does kind of sound... Um, it does kind of sound that... Uh, Whatever name Forlong was, like whatever language grouping Forlong was drawn from as a name of Gandalf in the south, right? Um, Forlong of Lasarnach is still, like, that name is still etymologically or, uh, you know, drawn from that same. In other words, he's not abandoned, it seems, um... Or at least that's how I would take it. Uh, it seems that he's not abandoned the sort of philological concept here, right? Uh, he's still building the languages the same way. He's just not giving a name the, from that to uh, uh, to Gandalf, but he's not randomly ascribed it to this Lord of Gondor, right? Um, it's a probably southern name, but it is indigenous and pre-Numenorian, which, again, would is presumably what that name of Gandalf was, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Carita Forlong is a word in Indiana. They use that word in Indiana? It'll rain a forlong? Oh, a forlong, right. Okay, I'm getting you now. A forlong. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay. All right. I don't think people don't say that here. But that's kind of fun, actually. I'd never thought of that. But I can, I can, I can hear it now. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. That's cool. Um, and yes, uh, several several of you are remembering, of course, that Gandalf was once named Bladorthin in The Hobbit. Uh, uh, mercifully, there's nobody left alive in Middle-earth who still calls him Bladorthin, apparently. And that's really just as well. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's go back to world building. Let's go back to, to, to culture. Let's, let's hear what Faramir is ready to reveal to us in his conversation about the world. But we were more fortunate than other cities, recruiting our strength from the sturdy folk of the sea coasts and the hardy people of the White Mountains, where lingered once many remnants of races long forgot. And then there came the men out of the north. The horse marshals changed to the Rohir, and we ceded them the fields of Rohan, changed to Elenarda, written above Kalinarda that are since called Rohan, for we could not resist their rude strength, and they became our allies, and have ever proved true, and they learn of our lore and speak our speech, yet they hold by their old ways and their own speech among themselves, and we love them, for they remind us of the youth of men, as they were in the old tales of the wars of the elves of Beleriand. Indeed, I think that in that way we are, uh, we are remotely akin, and that they come of, the old, of that old stock, the first to come out of the east, from which the fathers of the fathers of men came, Beren and Barahir, and Huor and Hurin, and Tuor and Turin, I, and Eärendil himself, the half-elven, first king of Westerness. 
So does some kinship in tongue and heart still tell. But they never crossed the sea, or went into the west, and so must ever remain alien, perhaps? Yet we intermarry, and if they have become somewhat like us and cannot be called wild men, we have become like them, and are no longer Numenorians. For now we love war and valor as things good in themselves, and esteem warriors above all others. Such is the need of our days. Okay. Um, huge world building. Yeah, uh, Arthur, the business about Arendel being the first king of Westerness, uh, that's one of those things that uh, Christopher wrote. You Remember, he, he wrote a note on this being like, I don't know, right? Uh, this could be like an honorary title. Um, it seems unlikely that Tolkien was entertaining the idea that Eärendil himself was going to first be crowned king of Numenor and then, you know, go back to the sky in his in his in his starship. I I don't because yeah, it's not pre Elrond and Elros, Arthur. I mean, remember we do have versions of the story in which Elrond was the king of Numenor. Remember how? Um, the whole the reason that Elrond got cloned was because Tolkien wanted to do both, right? He wanted him to be, you know, the last of the first age elves in Middle Earth, you know, the last link back to the first age of the you know the ancient days of the elves remaining in Middle Earth. But he also wanted him to be the king of Numenor, right? He wanted to be the the lord of of of, of Westerness. So he literally clones him, right? Makes him gives him a twin, uh, and then he can have him do both. Um I um I don't think I too I definitely agree with Christopher here that I have a hard time imagining Tolkien is conceiving of a change in subject here. Um it seems to me more likely that he is wanting for he Faramir, that is, is wanting to point to the link. He he wants to point back to um Arendel to make the connection with Elrond and, and, and the others to sort of show the the Elvish connection, right? Not only were our ancestors like Baron and Barahir and, and, and Hurin and, and, and Tuor and everybody, not only were they elf friends, right, but but Arendel himself, right? We have our roots in the half-elven. We're actually connected to the elves in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Josiah, really great point. Josiah's wondering about that, that line, because I agree, that's one of the other lines that really jumps out at you, right, in this, in this paragraph, is the business about the Rohirrim and how we could not resist their rude strength. Um, now, Josiah, I don't think that we necessarily need to see this as contradicting the ride of Aeoral, right? Um, we've just gotten that. Uh, now, of course, it was, re- you remember when last we saw it, I think it's true, we haven't seen it since, that Errol was riding to the field of Daggerlad to come to the to the aid of Isildur and Elendil, but still, that, you know, the ride of Errol the Young, I don't see much reason to think that that was, that he's doing away with that, and that instead uh, they are ceding land to them because they're being bullied out of, you know, the Gondorians are being bullied out of their land to the north and then just kind of getting along with the people who bullied them. But Josiah, that element is there, right? That, you know, we could not resist their rude strength. Um, I mean, it sounds like he's saying uh, they came to our aid, right? They became our allies and have proved true. Um but like we didn't dare say no to them almost is is what it is what it sort of sounds like but yeah it, it definitely the not being they're not being able to resist the rude strength of the rohirrim does introduce this kind of uncomfortable element of 
uh, of force, right? Of, uh, of, of compulsion to the gift of uh, Eleonarda or Kalinarda or Kalinarthon, as it is going to be eventually named, um, to, to Rohan. And, uh, and you know what it makes me think of? You know, and um, Tom, I'm thinking here of the point that you were making on this one a while back. It makes me think of the Dunlendings, right? Is it possible? Is it possible that that phrase is there because Tolkien is thinking through the whole... Is this maybe a consequence of him thinking through the Dunlending-Rohirrim relationship, right? That Gondor... Is he thinking perhaps Gondor didn't give them the Dunlending's land and say, here's your land, all you got to do is kick the natives out and it's yours, right? Maybe he said, I don't want to do that, so I'm just going to have the Rohirrim coming in and moving in themselves and the Gondorians just being like, well, let's make the best of a bad job. I guess we're giving them that land then, right? Um, I... uh, like the Goths over the Danube. Yes, yes. Um, Tomas is saying, like the late Western Roman Empire with the Frankish settlers of Gaul. Yeah, things like that have certainly happened before. Plenty of uh, precedents for that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder. I wonder. Um Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Karina, I wonder. Karina is, is just, I don't think you're joking, Karina, but I actually, I wonder. Uh, Karina's saying, you know, maybe it just, maybe by saying we couldn't resist it, maybe it just means like they're into it, right? Like, uh, you know, like uh, they had this rude strength and we just, you know, we were kind of into that and we thought they were, they were really cool. So we gave them, we gave them the land. Um, I, James was suggesting the same thing, actually, Karita, that it could just mean that they admired their strength, right? Uh, I tend to doubt it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I tend, I tend to doubt it that to imagining the, the 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 Gondorians, as you say, Karita, kind of fanning themselves and being like, oh, you know, those uh, those Rohir boys, right? They're so rash and impetuous and strong. I, I think we're just going to have to uh, uh, give them this land because we think they're dreamy. Um, I, I doubt it. <laughs> I rather doubt it. Um, but. Um, yeah, exactly, Tom. I don't think the Dunedain get vaporish about that sort of thing. But again, I wonder, could this be Tolkien wrestling with that, the, basically the imperialist situation, you know, with like with the, 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 the colonial problem? Because remember, the whole Dunlending situation kind of emerged at the Battle of Helm's Deep, right? Um, you know, they get to the Battle of Helm's Deep and they're being attacked by orcs and they're being attacked also by these Dunlendings. And you know, that sort of frontier... Remember, the Westfold was originally owned by the Dunlendings, right? So, you know, that the idea that there's this frontier to the west with this hostile human race uh, that's over there to the west of Rohan is the first thing sort of to emerge. And then the resentment, you know, during the battle as they're crying out, you know, death to the Strawheads, death to the Forgoyle, um, is... Um, uh, is um, 
again, it's the, the the concept of the old resentment of the Dunlendings seems to then, you know, again, just be one of those things that's sort of emerging and that he's kind of discovering. It wouldn't shock me that he's now, after that has happened, still trying to wrap his head around it, right? Especially in this context, in this context where he's now, this is now the new version, right? This is Numenorean Gondor 2.0, right? Gondor 1.0 was indigenous peoples, right, of like southern Rovanian or whatever, uh, you know, whatever you want to call this land before it was Gondor. Um, And then the Numenorians arrive and they love them and it's great and they welcome them. And that pattern, of course, is a very common pattern, right? The Numenorians to the indigenous Gondorians are as, you know, let's do an SAT analogy, right? Um, uh, So yeah, the, the, the Numenorians are to the Gondorians as... Galadriel is to the to the Galathrim, right? Um, or as later on, Thranduil is going to be to the elves of Mirkwood. That kind of thing happens all the time, right? When you get this sort of superior race that comes in, and they're accepted as kings and lords by the natives, right? That's that's a that's a feature of uh, a sort of Tolkienian history, you know, of the, like the, the Tolkienian political landscape. That's Gondor 1.0. Now in Gondor 2.0, they are Gondorians. Notice, to me, the most notable thing about this entire speech is the we, right? Faramir's, who's we? But we were more fortunate, recruiting our strength. Who's we? The Numenorians. that's who, right? Faramir son of the Lord of Minas Tirith, absolutely identifies himself as a Numenorean. There is no question any longer, clearly no longer any question of the Numenorians having been booted out of Minas Tirith, right? Now Minas Tirith is going to be, in its fundamental identity, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be, um, it's going to be Numenorean all the way through, right? Um, and therefore, uh, he is recasting the relationship between the Numenorians and the indigenous peoples, right? How did that work? Recruiting our strength from the sturdy folk of the seacoast and the hardy people of the White Mountains, right? So they joined with them. They mingled with them, right? So they, all, so they formed this Gondorian melting pot of Numenorean with the sturdy folk of the seacoast and the hardy people of the White Mountains. And then these burly, <laughs> these burly uh, Saxon-esque uh, Rohirrim come down from the north, right? And they recruit their rude strength as well. Um, and then they, they do get around, Jennifer, as you point out, to the intermarrying, right? Um yeah, <laughs> Karina points out that given Faramir's future marriage, the whole uh, we could not resist their rude strength thing becomes even funnier. Uh, uh, you're, you're so right, Karina, right? Especially if, uh, so now you're tempting me to say that we should get like what, like a like Eowyn should like be able to beat him up, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. I don't think that the when he says we could not resist their rude strength, I really cannot imagine that he means we couldn't resist it in that sense. Uh, so I, I totally cannot condone that as a legitimate reading of this sentence, but I absolutely grant that it is very funny, <laughs> and you can absolutely run with it. Um, but, um, yeah, 
<laughs> Arthur says she will not slay him in his turn. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yep. Yep. That all works. It all works. Uh, but anyway, again, so the point is now, so we, we have this, this, he's forging this new identity for what it means to be Gondorian, right? And what it means to be Gondorian is that you see your lineage going all the way back to, or at least your heritage, if not your blood lineage necessarily, though even their blood lineage, uh, they, uh, they, they clearly think of that too, but at the very least your heritage goes back to Baron, Barahir, Huor, Hurin, Tur. Notice the catalog, right? Uh, this is very, this is, this, this is quite, quite thorough. Well, okay, we do leave out Haleth, right? But still, all of the great heroes, right? Down to Eärendil, even Eärendil himself, um, whom he's going to claim as the first king of Westerness. Uh, and we have this idea of the fading. They have elevated the people around them, right? The, 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 the people of Rohan have learned some of their ways, right? And become more cultured and less rude. Uh, but the Numenorians, of course, have uh, come down to their, uh, um, uh, to, their, uh, to their level as well, to some extent. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> James points out that Holith could beat up Eowyn. Yeah, I think we're I think we're degenerating on this. On the let's move on. Let's just move on. Okay, um, isolated moment. You know, this the the text is kind of, kind of gets interrupted with this, but I just wanted to note it in passing as we went by. How cool is this, right? Um, here, Boromir or Boromir. Frodo, right, is talking to Faramir. He was interested in such matters, but also he thought of Bilbo. He'll want accounts of all these things, he thought. It is long since I made any note in my diary. Tonight, perhaps, as we rest. Then he smiled at himself. But he lives in the house of Elrond and can have more for the asking than all that is remembered in Gondor. Oh, but well, he'll like it best from a hobbit, personal recollections. He will if I ever see him again, alas. Um, first of all, can I just say I love this, um... I love this uh, uh, recollection of Bilbo. Um, since Carathras, we've gotten almost no reference, right? I mean, there's Sam's reference to that, like, Bilbo should be the one to write the song about Gandalf, right? Um, uh, you know, the, or that rather that he could do justice to, uh, uh, like, to Gandalf's fireworks or whatever. Um you know, we get that recollection by Frodo, as I said, in the snow in Carathras, that Bilbo wouldn't think much of his diary so far. But we get nothing. From the two towers on, we get no memory, essentially, until afterwards, right? That when, uh, when everything is done and the ring is destroyed, and they talk about Frodo having to lock himself up into, in a tower for a week uh, to write down everything before he forgets it. It's not until then that we, the readers, are reminded that Frodo's supposed to be keeping notes so that he can tell uh, Bilbo, right? And uh, and I I love this. I I kind of miss this, right? But notice, thinking about this passage on another level, this is also really fun, right? This sounds to me like. Doesn't it sound almost like Tolkien making a note to himself, right? He knows, he knows he's got, a, he's got to now retcon, the whole Council of Elrond, right? a big chunk of the Council of Elrond needs to just be pitched out the window because almost everything Aragorn said at the Council of Elrond needs at least to be 
re-qualified, right? Recontextualized um, with this new history of Gondor that is now emerging as Faramir is talking and talking, right? So I love the fact that at this moment, of course, Fro- Frodo's like, Bilbo would be really interested to hear this, right? But, you know, he probably knows it all because he's in Rivendell. And, of course, everybody in Rivendell already knows this stuff, which I totally had not thought of when I was in when the story was in Rivendell. But, like, in retrospect, Bilbo would totally be would not need to be told this stuff. Right. Because all this stuff would be. It's almost again like you can hear Tolkien thinking this through himself as he writes. Right. Okay, wait. Yeah. No, this would be known. This is news to me. Right. This is just emerging now. But this is not going to be obscure stuff. This is this. Elrond would totally know this. Bilbo would totally know this stuff already. Shoot, I've got to rewrite the Council of Elrond now. Um, but uh, but of course they were they're still combined with that 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 really uh, 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 sweet moment, uh, Karita, as you say of uh, of um, Frodo remembering Bilbo and how Bilbo is going to want the personal touch. Right, he'd like it best from a Hobbit. Anyway, okay, but back to the history of Gondor. Okay, the history of Gondor through an elvish lens. More Faramir talk. Indeed, it is said by the lore masters among us that they are somewhat our kin in blood and in speech, being descended from those of the three houses of men who went not over sea into the west, changed from, being descended, or changed to, rather, being descended from those same three houses of men as were the Numenorians, from Beor and Hador and Halith but from such as went not over the sea into the west at the calling of the powers. Thus they have to us a kinship. This is, of course, still the Rohirrim we're talking about. Thus they have to us a kinship, such as the exiled elves that linger still in the west, of such indeed as the Lady of the Golden Wood, and returned not to Elvenholm, have to those who departed. But they have never returned, changed to, such as the high elves that do here and there abide still in the west of these lands, have to those who lingered and never went to Elvenholm. Such is the kinship of the Lady of the Golden Wood to the folk she rules. And so, as the elves are divided into three, the high elves, the middle elves, the lingerers, the elves of the woods, their kindred that lingered on the change to, their kindred that lingered on the shores, and the wild elves, the refusers, change to, of the woods and mountains, so we divide men, calling them the high, or men of the light, or change to, high or men of the west, which are the Numenorians, and the middle, or the men of the shadow, such as the Rohiroth and other of their kindred in Dale and Mirkwood, and the wild men, or the men of darkness. And of the truth of this is their likeness of tongue, sorry, and of the truth of this, their likeness of tongue and heart still speaks. Nonetheless, those of Numenor passed over the sea indeed, even if after they forfeited their kingdom and returned, and so they became a people apart and should remain so. Yet if the Rohir became in some ways more like to us, enhanced in art and gentleness, we too have become more like to them, and do not now rightly claim the title High. We are become middlemen, the shadow, but with memory of other things. Okay, so that business about the High, the the middle and the low, right? The high, the middle, and the and the wild of men. Um, this is, you know, this is still... Um, um, 
you know, of course, you recognize this speech from the two towers, right? He doesn't say all this stuff, and a lot of this detail is going to be trimmed down uh, in the final version. Um, but this speech, you know, what he's getting at here in this speech is still there uh, in the two towers. Um, what is not explicit, though, seems still to be operative, really, um, is that Faramir's whole conception of the Gondorians and their relationship with those the other classes of men, that threefold structure, is explicitly done in parallel to the elves, right? Um, so let's kind of unpack this just a little bit, because this is kind of hard to follow, especially since the terminology that Faramir is using here is not the terminology of the published Silmarillion. Right? He divides the elves into three categories, primarily. Now, this is not... This sound, at first, it sort of sounds like the passage in The Hobbit that talks about the three different kindreds of the elves, right? Um, you know, the light elves, the deep elves, and the sea elves, meaning what will eventually be called the Vanyar and the Noldor and the Teleri. Um, when he divides, when Faramir divides the elves into three, he's not dividing them into three by families, right? By blood, by, um, by clans, right? Um, He's not talking about the three kin of the elves. He's talking about three categories in an importantly different sense, right? There are the elves who answered the call and went into the west of all of the three kindreds, right? So everybody who went over to Valinor, the Calaquendi, right? The elves of the light. Those are the high elves in this sense, right? And then you've got the middle elves. The middle elves are like the Sindar and also the Sylvan elves. Everybody who answered the call and set out, but didn't cross the sea, right? The lingerers, right? Those who went, who obeyed and went with the Valar, but didn't make it all the way over to Valinor. Gray elves, green elves, uh, sylvan elves, all those, right? Um, so you've got the high elves, the elves who went to Valinor, the middle elves, the lingerers, those who started to go but stayed, and then the wild elves, those are the Avari. Those are the ones who said to the Valar, talk to the hand, we are not going, we are staying in Quivienen, and we want nothing to do with it. And so it's on that basis, Calaquendi, gray slash green elves, and the Avari, uh, or the refusers, That's those are the ways in which Faramir categorizes uh, the the men and so it's it's interesting it's important to see that right because when he is ta- he's not it can sound like a merely classist thing i think in the two towers right we of course are the high men right and then there are the low men right the men of the darkness right and we kind of elevate people up to our exalted status but we've kind of declined and we've become middlemen now um we see now that farmier was not just being snooty, right? He had a very specific difference in mind, just as the, there's, there are concrete uh, things. And what are those things? What is the term? The determ- what separates them, right? What separates the high elves from the lingerers, from the refusers, right? And the answer is their own choices, not just their circumstances, right? But their choices, the high elves are the ones who went all the way, who obeyed all the way. Even though some of them disobeyed later on and came back and did bad things, right? The Noldor made bunches of mistakes uh, and did lots of horrible things. But they're still defined by the 
initial choice that they made, right? And they may decline from that heritage, as of course many of them do, but still, they remain... Uh, they 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 remain they they have been elevated by that initial choice that they made to join with the Valar and to grow up to the Valar. So the Numenorians, right? The Numenorians, uh, in parallel, he, he describes it in, in exact parallel, right? Answering the call uh, of the Valar to go into the West, right? Not quite so far into the West, but still to go into the West. So the Numenorians are elevated, like the the Calaquendi were elevated by coming into the West and receiving the blessing of the Valar, which, again, they chose, right? They chose to do that. They made the good choice. There were others who who lingered, right, who were in the category with them. They were related to them. They, like the Numenorians, chose to side with the elves against Morgoth, right, and fight the wars. They were the descendants of, of, uh, of Beor and Hador and Haleth, right? But they chose not to go to Numenor, so they are just like the Sindar, right, who chose to obey the call of the Valar, to, to, to sort of be on the side of the Valar, right, but they never made it all the way. They didn't go over to Valinor, and so they, the category that they end up in is a consequence of their two choices, right, the choice to follow, but then not to go all the way. So too, the, like the Rohirrim, right, this middle class of men, and then, of course, there's the third class, the elves who decide, who divorce themselves from their relationship with the Valar from the very beginning and decide they want nothing to do with it, right? So, too, we have the men who go their entire, their own way, the wild men, who are not just, uh, who are not just exactly, Stephen, it's exactly unlike the Romans, right? Uh, classifying people as barbarians simply because they're not Romans and speak an uncouth language compared to Latin, right? Yeah, absolutely. That is, that, Stephen, that's kind of what Faramir in the Two Towers sounds like, right? Um, like, like a Roman speaking of barbarians when he refers to the wild men, right? But it's clear, again, in this context, the parallel with the elves makes it very clear. That's not the case, right? The wild men are not just those who happen to uh, be less, you know, advanced in their technology, language, and arts, right? They are what, who have turned away from the light. They are the descendants of the of the elves who did, or of the of the men rather, who did not come into the west of the world, who were not going to seek the light, who did not ally themselves with the elves against uh, against the darkness, right? Against Morgoth, um, and it's from these people, these wild people, who have never turned themselves right, as a culture, towards the light, towards the Valar. It is from these people that Sauron recruits his armies, right? That's where the people in the east and the people in the south come from. It doesn't mean that they're intrinsically evil, they're not orcs, right? But culturally culturally speaking, they're wild men. They are men of the darkness, men who have, their cultures have chosen always, chosen to remain in darkness from the beginning, and thus are easily deceived by Sauron, right? So it's a, uh, it's a very interesting um, uh, way of kind of understanding where Faramir is coming from in his categorization, right? And he says that they've become middlemen now, right? They've become men of this. So they're like that middle class um, because they have dwindled to become like them, um, uh, just as the Noldor also can dwindle, right, and fade, over time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. 
<laughs> yeah. Matthew, I'm not sure if they think that digital watches are a really neat idea or not. Uh, okay. Now, Faramir keeps talking. We got the history of Gondor through, uh, through, through an elvish lens before. Now we get the history of elves through a Gondorian lens. You don't say much in all your tales about the elves, sirs. Uh, notice we get elves, sir, again, right? You know, once you guys pointed that out, I can't not see it. So I know that was in Exploring the Lord of the Rings, and I'm missing classes here, but uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and watch the Chapter 2 sessions uh, of uh, 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 Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Elves, sir. Sam says it three times. Anyway, whatever. Okay. You don't say much in all your tales about the elves, sir, said Sam, suddenly plucking up courage. He was rather in awe of Faramir since his encounter on his master's behalf. No, Master Samwise, said Faramir. And there you touch upon another point in which we have changed, becoming more as other men. For, as you may know, if Mithrandir was your guest, and you have spoken with Elrond, the Numenorians were elf friends, and came of those men who aided the gnomes in the first wars, and were rewarded by the gift of the kingdom in the midst of the sea, within sight of Elvenholm, whither the high elves withdrew, written above where the high elves dwelt. But in the great lands, men and elves were estranged by the arts of the enemy, who had suborned most men, save only the fathers of the Numenorians, to his service, and by the slow changes of time in which each kind walked further down their sundered roads. Men fear and misdoubt the elves, distinguishing not between the high elves that here and there remain, and those that, like themselves, never went over the sea. And elves mistrust men, like the men even of Rohan, who see them not if they pass, or persuade themselves that they do not see, and who speak of the golden wood in dread. Who would do that, right, Faramir? Yet there are elf friends among us in Gondor still, more than among any other people. For though the blood of Numenor is now run thin in Gondor, still it flows there. Indeed, even elvish blood, maybe. For our kings of old were half-elven, even our first king Elros, son of Eärendil and brother of Elrond. And tis said that Elendil's house was a younger branch of Elros. Some there are of Gondor who have dealings with the elves, some even still fare to the Golden Wood, though often they return not. One great advantage we have, we speak an elvish speech, or one so near akin that we can in part understand them, and they us. Spoken like a philologist, right? Faramir might as well just come out and be like, Our, we speak... We, we speak an elvish speech, or at least one which is etymologically derived from the elvish speech, and still is 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 sufficiently near to it that those who are proficient in the in the root language can still understand uh, our now highly changed dialect over time. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so. Notice how far Faramir has come, right? I mean, that's, it's very striking. Remember, it was Sam, the thing that made Sam stand up and get in Falborn's face in the first part, in the interrogation half of the story of Faramir, um, was him dissing the Lady of the Golden Wood, right? When he started to, when he started to talk smack about the elves and speak exactly like he describes here, um, mis- you know, fearing and misdoubting the elves and speaking of the Golden Wood in dread, right? When he did, when he did that acting like one of those Rohirrim, you know, one of the, that's when Sam got all up in his case. Um, now, uh, we see, now, of course, he is 
way, 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 way beyond that, right? Um, and he's now able to lecture on this topic about how some men, misguidedly, but understandably, under the circumstances, act this way, right? Um, I love the line, yet there are elf friends among us in Gondor still, more than among any other people, right? Um, again, this idea of, no, it's not just culturally speaking, we are more pro-elf than most of the other cultures around us. That's not what he's saying, right? There are individuals among us who are elf friends, and we have more of those individuals in our society still than others do, right? Like that being an elf friend is still a very discreet and distinct thing. Uh, and, and it's known, right? Like, I don't know, do they keep a register? You know, does Faramir have a list somewhere, right? Does he, does he have them? Uh, do they, do they have a club? Do they have a clubhouse in, in Minas Tirith, right? Where the elf friends hang out? You know, do they, I, I don't know. Like, do they, do they get a special, you know, honorary title or initials after their name or something? Is there something in Gondorian society that actually marks like, if you become an elf friend, then you qualify for certain tax breaks. I don't know, right? But uh, is, it, is, it, is, it a, is it an accepted thing? Like, it, would, would everybody know it if you were an elf, if you became an elf friend? Um, I don't really, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, hang on, Karita, if you want to talk about, uh, you know, Sam fanboy, fanboying over the elves. Uh, we're getting there, right? He's going he's gonna to get much worse than this, right, when it comes to that. Um, but, uh, so really interesting to see how he is looking at what he knows about the uh, elves and the fading of the elves and, uh, you know, Galadriel and her status and her history and her relationship with her people and all these things. Uh, again, all of this stuff is sort of emerging. Remember, he just worked out Galadriel. She just kind of appeared on the scene, kind of like Faramir has appeared on the scene. And she grew and expanded and totally took over that sequence in a very similar way to how Faramir uh, has suddenly grown and taken over this thing. So uh, Faramir and Galadriel actually, can, in that sense, right, have uh, have quite a bit in common. Anyway, um, all right, let's keep going. And then, of course, we can't let the etymology thing go, right? We can't let the philology part just just sit. But you speak the ordinary language, exclaimed Sam, like us, or a bit old-fashioned-like, if you'll pardon me saying so. Yes, said Faramir, we do, for that is our language. The common tongue, as some call it, is derived from the, from the Numenorean, being a changed form of that speech of men which the fathers used, Baron and Turin and Arendel and those others. Hence its remote kinship with the tongues of Rohan and of Dale and of Westfold and Dunland and other places. This language it is that has spread through the Western world among all that are of good will, and among others also. But the lords of Numenor spoke the gnomish tongue of the Noldor to whom they were allied, and that tongue, changed somewhat and mingled, still lives among us, though we do not commonly speak it. So it is that our earliest names were in the high elvish Quendian, such as Elendil, Isildur, and the rest. But for the names but the names we have given to places and still give to women and men are of elvish sort. Often we give them out of the old tales. So is Denethor 
and Mablung, and many others. Okay. Uh, now, here I think this is cool because... Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, Karina, I do believe that all of Goodwill and others also <laughs> kind of means everyone, or at least very, very many people, right? Um, he kind of gives the impression there, doesn't he, that, like, it really, like... It's appropriate for those who are of goodwill to speak it. Others who speak it, they've not been invited to speak this language, right? We kind of, you know, we don't approve of bad guys talking our language, too. But, you know, whatever, it happens. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Jennifer, exactly. Nothing better than sitting in the forest in you know behind enemy lines and discussing history and philology. Exactly. They're still sitting. Exactly. They're still sitting in a glade in Athelion having this conversation. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's really kind of fun. But Brandon, I absolutely agree. I think you're exactly right here. Brandon Minnick says it's it's like Tolkien is getting this world information from Faramir now that he's shown up and is talking. Absolutely. And that's that's what I see happening here. This is not just Tolkien saying, at least I believe, uh, you know, reading this. This is not just Tolkien saying, ooh, this would be an opportune moment for me to squeeze in some of that linguistic stuff that I've been thinking about, right? No. I'm, this is Tolkien discovering this linguistics, and he can't help himself, right? He's, it's it, it's, it's got to come out, right? The Westron speech. Why do they all speak the same language? Of course, right? It's derived from the Numenorean. This cannot have been his conception. It's not possible that this was his conception of the common speech. Uh, you know, why the hobbits and, you know, the and, and Aragorn and the elves and lots of other people all speak the same language, Right. His explanation for that, if he had made an explanation for that three years before this, right? If he if he had sat down and given us that explanation in 1940 or 1941, it's 44 already here. Um, clearly, he wouldn't have said this, right? Uh, because this concept emerges from the post Faramir Gondor structure, right now, where uh, the Numenorean culture has worked itself into the very fabric of Western men here in Middle-earth, right? Gondor and elsewhere, right? And, and their, their influence spreading out among the Rohirrim, even the, the men of Dale and Dunland, even, right? Um, all of these peoples speak the, of the language which is ultimately the language of Numenor. They speak our language, right? <laughs> Karina, you're cracking me up tonight. Karina says he can't help himself. Tolkien can't help himself. He can't resist the, the language lore's rude strength. <laughs> yeah, something like that. There's, there's Tolkien fanning himself, right? Uh, as, as, these, as, the, as the philological uh, ramifications are unfolding themselves before him. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Jennifer Pope adds intermarriage to follow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Uh, you're absolutely right, Karina. Tolkien cannot resist the rude strength of, of any of these philological speculations that come along the way. But this is more like... This is more than just a speculation, right? This is more than just an excuse for him to think about the... This is a discovery, right? Um, 
looking back on it, right, in retrospect, why does everybody speak the same language, right? Why does that happen? Why do hobbits and the men of Bree and, and, and the people of Rivendell and Boromir you know, from the south and, and, and the dwarves and everybody, why do they all speak the same language, right? Well, there are two answers to that question. Right? Or rather, there used to be only one answer to that question, and the only answer that I know of now, right? the only answer that I, that I think, like, again, if, if the only answer to that question in 1939 or 1940 would have been because they did in The Hobbit, right? That's The Hobbit situation. Everybody speaks the same language. Well, of course, you remember, who doesn't speak? There's only one group of people who don't speak the same language. Everybody speaks the same language except for... You remember? Who in The Hobbit doesn't speak normal language? Spiders speak normal language, right? Goblins speak normal language. Well, thrushes, technically, but that's not about necessary, you know, maybe... I, I'll give you thrushes. I'll give you thrushes. Yeah, trolls speak, you know, kind of cockney, but they still speak the same language as everybody else. The wargs! The wargs speak their own language. Exactly, James Liebeck got it. Yeah, the wolves. Uh, the wolves speak their own language. Gandalf knows the language, right? It's a horrible language. Um, even the eagles speak the same language. Crude, right? Everybody speaks the same language. It's just Tolkien is imagining a much simpler kind of fairy tale situation. Why? Why is the answer to that? Why does everybody speak the same language in The Hobbit? Because Tolkien wasn't answering that question. Like, Tolkien wasn't doing that kind of world building. He was just telling a fairy tale, right? Um, and so everybody speaks the same language because that's kind of convenient. In fact, like, the whole idea of, like, the wolves' language, which sounds like it's, you know, uh, like everything in it is about, like, you know, uh, wicked and horrible things, because it was, right? That's like a little Easter egg. from It's like a little philology Easter egg from Tolkien, right, that he, that he just tosses in there for fun. But everybody, of course, everybody speaks the same language, right? It's just, it's, 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 it's a simple fairy tale kind of thing. He's not thinking about world building. He's not trying to answer the question, you know, what are the, like, geopolitical circumstances that led to the eagles, the elves, the dwarves, and the hobbit souls, and the men of Dale, or, you know, and, 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 and Esgaroth, all speaking the same language, right? Um, that question is not on the table in The Hobbit. And so the same thing seems to be all the way through the Council of Elrond, right? Why is everybody speaking the same language? It's just what happens, right? Because they did in The Hobbit, right? So they still are. Um, and now, all of a sudden, boom, we have an explanation, right? Now he, now he realizes why everybody speaks the same language, and it all becomes clear. Um, we do speak ordinary language, because that's our language. Like, actually, you, we're not, I don't speak your language, you speak my language, right? We began it. The common tongue is derived from Numenorean. Boom, and off we go, right? Now he has both the philological and the sort of historical and geopolitical uh, explanation for how the common tongue came to be spoken and why everybody seems to speak it. Both 
those who are of goodwill and others. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, so, oh, Tara, uh, Tara, Tara asks if the elves ta- taught the ends how to speak, where does their unique language come from? Elvish, yeah, elvish. Um, when um, when Treebeard, that's his name, when Treebeard uh, uh, speaks his thing, he's like speaking this like mishmash elvish. He's like taking elvish words and syllables and like stringing them together in this completely like syntactically unique way, right? Which is very characteristically treeish, like a name that's growing all the time, right? Um, uh, but what we see him doing is derived from elvish. Uh, is it possible that they have their own language also? You know, and the like, you know, the hum hum and the uh, taraboom, taraboom boom and all that stuff is is uh, the native Entish speak. That's entirely possible. Um, that they developed their own tree language in speaking to the to their trees that they were uh, tree herding, right? Um, but they also clearly show the signs of the Elvish languages that they learned originally. Anyway. But let's not get distracted like Faramir. Uh, so, anyway, so this is just awesome. But notice also the uh, the name. This came up, I think, last week, and I said we come to it later, and here we are now. Um, they consciously name folks after heroes out of the old tales, right? Denethor, Mablung. It's not a coincidence, right? Um, yes, this did come up last week because people were asking about recycling, right? Tolkien is not just recycling these names. He's not taking the name Denethor and pulling it out of his old discarded, or potentially discarded or long lost names from the Silmarillion manuscripts, right? Um, He is instead envisioning within this new world that he's made, this new Gondorian world that he's made, this culture which very self-consciously connects itself back to the old world, which remembers very well the Silmarillion stories, right? The stories of the old elvish heroes, the story of the old human heroes from back in the first age. So what would such a culture do? They would name their kids things like Hurin and Denethor and Mablung and even apparently Turambar for particularly sadistic parents, right? Um, But anyway, yeah, that's totally what they would do. And that's in fact what we what we see them doing here. So yes, totally not recycling. Uh, uh, this is, uh, uh, this is, per- the, these are, those are on purpose. Okay, Karita, here we go. Here's the Sam fanboy scene. I love this passage. Sam looked at Faramir wide-eyed and almost with awe to have an elvish name and even a possible claim to elvish blood, however remote, seemed to him like royalty indeed. Well, Captain, your lordship, I should say, it is good to hear you speak so fair of elves, sir. There it is again, elves, sir. I wish I had an elvish name. Wonderful folk they are, aren't they? Think of the things they can make and the things they say. You don't find out their worth or their meaning all at once, as it were. It comes out afterwards, unexpected-like. Just a bit of well-made rope in a boat, and there it is. One day it's just what you want, and it unknots itself when you ask it and jumps to your hand. And the boat, I agree with your lordship. I think it rode the falls and took no harm. Of course it would, if that was needed. It was an elven boat, sir. And I sat in one for many a day and never noticed nothing special. 
I think you are right, Master Samwise, said Faramir, smiling, though some would say the white lady had enchanted you. And she did, sir, said Sam. The lady of Lorien, Galadriel, you should see her. Indeed you should, sir. I am only a hobbit, and gardening's my job at home. And then we transition into, of course, the passage that we are familiar with from the Silmarillion. Um, I mean, just... <laughs> Jennifer says, intermarriage to follow. <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the comment about Coadriel's rude strength. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, how adorable is this, right? This is just so precious. I, 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 and yeah, it's just so much. Uh, and Karina, yeah, see how, how excited he is about being enchanted, right? And she did, sir! She totally enchanted me! It was great! Uh, you should try it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's just, it's just so awesome. Um, and yeah, James, it is interesting, isn't it, to see Tolkien being uh, more explicit about the sort of magic objects, right? The the the, the magic and the, the 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 things of of elvish craft. Now, James, I take Faramir's comment. His uh, some would say the white lady has enchanted you, as him. I don't know what at least reserving judgment, right? Um, in you know suggesting that um, maybe maybe it's not so, or maybe there's there's more to it. Maybe it's kind of at least partly, you know, in his own mind, right? Um, that he, uh, you know, that he's not necessarily um, uh, being entirely objective about this. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's mostly just kind of Sam really loving the, um, uh, the elvish stuff and it's it's not, because Sam's totally convinced right that you know this all these things are um, they just as soon as you need them right their 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 worth becomes apparent and 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 available for you there um, anyway so I think that that's but is he wrong right do we really have reason to think? that he's necessarily wrong. You know, I don't know that we do have reason to think that. Um, especially since that, um, that trend that he's describing, we're going to see it borne out, right? Um, Tolkien's not going to say this, because I agree with you, James, that he's much more under... Uh, understated. That's the word I'm looking for in the published text, right, about elvish magic. But this is exactly... Think of how the file of Goadriel works, right? Uh, what Sam's... You don't find out their worth or their meaning all at once. It comes out afterwards unexpected-like, right? Just like a bit of well-made boat. Rope in a boat, right? Just like, you know, a magic file full of starlight that you carry around and you don't understand what it's for or what good it is. And then all of a sudden, when you find yourself in Minas Morgul, when you find yourself in Shelob's Lair, when you find yourself at the Tower of Kirithungal, it, you know, becomes, its need and, 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 and usefulness becomes apparent, right? Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, 
so is this just Sam being in love with elves and and reading it this way? Yeah, I mean, again, Faramir seems at least potentially resistant to the idea, but I, again, with things like the file of Goadriel, we see this exactly, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, isn't it fun, though, how Sam comes full circle with Faramir, right? Or not quite full circle, I guess he just does a 180, right? Where the first interaction between Sam and the Faramir character is when the Faramir character badmouths elves and Sam gets all up in his face, and now Sam is all like, oh, oh, you are just so cool. You've got an elvish name, and you've got, like, some very, very small quantity of elvish blood. Man, that makes you like a king, right? I wish I could be like you. And, yes, isn't it really lovely, um, Brandon, to remember the fact that Sam's going to give his daughter an elvish name, right? This really kind of puts that whole thing in a new light, right? Uh, and that's uh, and that's that's pretty fun. All right, we're almost at the end of class, so let's talk about today's reading. Uh, let's let's see if we can get through a few slides. I'll, I'll keep going for a little bit because I started late today. Um, so we get to uh, we we now have the reverse rescue. We, the once he gets through all of this conversation and realizes I need a place for this conversation to happen in right now, we get Henneth Anun. Now we get the, uh, the beginning of Henneth Anun. Uh, and once we're there, then of course we have, we still have the Gollum situation. How do we resolve the Gollum situation? Uh, Sam was hopeful that the men of Gondor were just forgetting about Gollum. It seems that for a time, uh, while Faramir is talking and talking and the entire world is kind of changing around him, uh, Tolkien has forgotten Gollum too. The last we saw of Gollum was that he was going to be used as uh, 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 the agent of rescue, right? When when they when they were going to need rescue, because there was no other way to get them out of the clutches of the uh, good, in, the, you know, the the good intentioned but uh, faithful uh, captain of Gondor. Now, the situation gets reversed, right? They are roused late at night, moonset over Mindaliwen. Sam grumbles at being waked only to see moonlight. They see Gollum fishing below the pool. Faramir says he must shoot to kill, or Frodo must help to capture him. Frodo and some men go out. Frodo calls Gollum, and Gollum is caught, still clutching a fish. Faramir warns Frodo against Gollum. Struck out, Frodo tells him, no, it is Gollum. Frodo begs for his life. It is grant that is for Gollum's life, presumably not his own. It is granted if Frodo will induce Gollum to come and something or other. Gollum is caught by guards and brought in. He feigns great delight to Frodo. Nice fish begs him not to delay but start in morning. They go back to sleep till morning. They go on through woods by day. No orcs. Farewell. They are out of reckoning and take longer than something or other. Okay, so the shape of the uh, episode is starting to form itself. We see this is very similar uh, to the uh, the incident, of course, as it's going to end up being described in the published text. Um, so several things here. First of all, remember the first incident of the Athelian sequence, right? In the world after the Black Gate, the first of those Athelian incidents that emerged was the stewed rabbit. 
right? And the stewed rabbit emerges. What what was this, the center? What was the core of that? So what was that story about? And you know, as we were talking about last time, that, that story is about the relationship, the three-way relationship, right? The relationship between Gollum and Sam and Frodo and trying to decide and develop that. How is that working? What's going on? How are they all connected with each other? Um, so that was the, seemed to be the focal point of, uh, certainly of that stewed rabbit section. Now we seem to see Tolkien coming back to this again. How is this Gondorian incident, right? How is the Faramir incident going to impact that relationship, right? How are, how is he going to connect, um, how is he going to connect Frodo and Sam back to Gollum? Because Gollum needs to be brought in. What's Gollum going to think about this and what kind of impact is this going to have on their relationship, right? And so, sort of his answer is they're going to save Gollum's life, but there's going to be at least potential for misunderstanding here, right? Um, notice that there's no emphasis on the betrayal, right? Um, Frodo feeling horrible about that what he's doing, he's doing everything that he can, the only thing he can do to save Gollum's life, but that this is going to seem like a treachery to the poor treacherous creature, right? And Gollum's condemnation, you know, wicked, tricksy, false, right? Um, and uh, even nice masters, little trickses, right? Which he still, you know, sticks him with later on. Um, that element is not present here. I mean, I'm not saying it's, you know, he wasn't thinking in those terms, but that's not the emphasis here in this outline that never gets alluded to. In fact, the only even maybe indirect hint at that element uh, here is the fact that Gollum is feigning great delight at Frodo. But I I don't want to rest too much on that because Christopher is guessing that that word is feigning, right? Um, And if if he's wrong about that, if that word is something else, then it totally changes things. Indeed, the words that Christopher Tolkien seems more confident in, uh, in those sentences, seem to suggest that Gollum is just genuinely happy, right? Um, That he's delighted to see Frodo. Uh, what offers him a fish, talks about nice fish, um, begs him not to delay but start in the morning. Um, notice we don't get any reference to, like, the trial of Frodo, right? Tri- uh, or not Frodo, of Gollum, right? Gollum's trial before Faramir. Um, he's just brought in, seems delighted and relieved to see Frodo, and then they're going to, like, just set out in the morning, right? They're just like, it's, the, they're reunited. So, it still seems to be primarily a rescue scene, and we don't get that same level of in, of sort of psychological complexity, right? Where Gollum's life has been saved, but from his point of view, it looks like he was betrayed by Frodo, right? Um, we don't. Uh, I don't think that we can see any evidence that were uh, that 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 element is is here in this initial draft. Um, Okay. This element was of the of the two chapters we were looking at for today. This is uh to me the most well I was going to call it eye-opening, but um in the original draft of Frodo's reply to Faramir's question concerning Gollum, why does he so? That is why is he coming to the hidden, you know, to the forbidden pool and fishing there? 
He says, in support of his suggestion that Gollum does not realize that men are concealed there, that he has night eyes, but he is nearsighted, and I doubt if he could see us up here. In a second draft of the passage, the last phrase became, and sees to no great distance clearly. In the manuscript, and distant things are dim to him. Against this, in the second of these drafts, my father wrote at the same time, make it not Gollum, who looked out at the Moranon, or make it a hundred yards, with two hundred yards written above. Right? So we're going to have to move their whole hiding spot much closer to the Black Gate, because otherwise Gollum's not going to be able to see it, because he's, he's supposed to be short-sighted. So we see him not just sort of at the spur of the moment, you know, making this suggestion. We see him actually sort of planning and contemplating, you know, the, going back and retconning this into the, into the earlier uh, chapters here. Um, okay, so anyway, let's keep going. But the reference to Gollum's nearsightedness was struck from the typescripts and does not appear in the two towers. And Gollum remained the one who looked out from the hollow before the Black Gate and saw very cruel, wicked men coming up the road from the south. My father hesitated much over the distance from the hollow to the road, and this was clearly one of the reasons for it. The frog-like figure that climbed out of the water as Frodo and Faramir looked down on the pool was a subsequent change from spidery figure. Okay, Um, so let's um, let's think about... uh, the short-sightedness of Gollum. This is a really interesting thing. Uh, what I'm most interested in about, um, the, you know, Gollum's short-sightedness is um, it has, to me, a really appealing sort of symbolic dimension, right? Um, and it's not hard to kind of read that sort of thing symbolically, right? Um, his short-sightedness. Um, exactly, Ariel. That's just what I was thinking, too. To, to see his short-sightedness as a kind of a commentary on his uh, his psychological short-sightedness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that that's a really kind I I think it's kind of a cool thing. Um what seems to begin as there needs to be an explanation why Gollum hasn't spotted the men, right? Uh, and why he has come to this pool. Uh, in other words, Gollum is so sneaky and so sharp, you know, has such sharp senses. One of two things has to happen. In order for, for Frodo and Sam to be reunited with Gollum, which they need to be, either the men have to just capture him and haul him in, or he has to come. Right, so he kind of has it both ways. Right, um, they are going to capture Gollum, but they're not just going to hunt him down in the woods and drag him in. Right, he's going to successfully elude them, um, and he's going to come to them. But he's not just going to come up and knock on their door and say like, "Hey, do you have Frodo and Sam?" Um, and so it seems it would appear, therefore, that the sort of you know the the seed of the short-sightedness of Gollum, or the concept of the short-sightedness of Gollum, comes in just the need to explain why he would come here uh, and get himself captured so conveniently. Um, But I think that it ends up working really well, right? I think it ends up uh, um, uh, uh, 
And yet, James uh, Oakley, that's a really good way to think about that. Um, you know, Mike is remembering that, of course, the wraiths are very short-sighted, right? They can't see very much. And, of course, James Oakley points out that the, the elves are far-sighted, right? Especially, you know, like Legolas. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, again, it works symbolically, right, to show his, his affinity with the wraiths. You can see his short-sightedness as a consequence of his corruption um, by the ring. I, I like it. I think it really works. It seems that Tolkien, you know, kind of like once he went back and started to retcon the thing, he seems to have lost his enthusiasm for the idea. Uh, but it's a kind of a cool moment. And the business about, uh, yeah, Brandon, I, I also agree. I think that the, uh, the calling him a spidery figure there is maybe a little bit too to Pat, right? As Brandon says, he, uh, Tolkien doesn't want to tip his hand too much, right? About the the spider business yet. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let me stop there. It's getting it's getting pretty late. I, I'm, I'm even though I was late, I don't want to I don't want to keep you guys too late because I'm feeling guilty. So uh, let's let's uh, let's stop there. I got a few more things I want to talk about about Gollum and uh, you know these passages in the crossroad and Tolkien trying to work out the mechanics of getting them to Minas Morgul, right? Um, but we'll so we'll finish. We'll start with that next week, and then we'll, of course we'll move on to Kirithungol. We get to Kirithungol and and start exploring and figuring out the spiders and how that how that stuff works right so we'll we'll get to meet Shelob uh next time which will be pretty cool so anyway i look forward to that thank you guys for joining me thank you again for your generosity and support of signum university if you haven't had a chance and you still want to contribute uh as we begin to build our accreditation fund i i would you know really welcome and be grateful for that thank you guys for all of your help and support thanks for joining me tonight and i'll see you guys next week Bye now.